We are wrapping up a series of messages on the life of Elijah that we have called Firefall. And this morning, we're going to talk about running on empty. Michael Phelps is the most decorated Olympic athlete in history. He has 28 total medals. No one else gets to that level. Of those 28 medals, 23 of them are gold, which is absolutely astounding. Michael Phelps has known what it means to know the extreme discipline of an Olympic swimmer, to go through two and three hour practices twice a day, to uh, have the discipline of a diet. Well, if you've ever seen what Michael Phelps eats while he's training, it's not a diet. You think of less food when you think of diet. It's like this enormous amount of food that he eats to fuel his body for that. But he knows the discipline of eating properly. He knows what it means to, to build up to a huge event like that and to see our flag raised and our anthem played when they placed a gold medal around his neck. And that's happened to him 23 times. But he also knows what it means for the spotlight to fade and for the reporters to go away and chase the next big story and to be left isolated and alone. Michael Phelps has openly said that he suffers from depression. And depression is, is so debilitating. In 2014, he said there was a period of time when he just went into his bedroom, he went into his room, and he didn't come out for days. He just felt absolutely hopeless. Now, there are some of you in this room who would say, without raising your hand, which you would never do, I can identify with that. I have suffered from depression. And for some of you, that is clinical. It's been diagnosed. Maybe it's a chemical imbalance in your body or perhaps there was some severe trauma that you experienced at some point in your life and it has left you with a struggle to walk through. And what I want to say to you is this, that if that is you, I believe that this message could help you to understand, to give you some tools, but you need to take your medication, you need to keep going to your counseling because those are important tools that God will use in your life. But all of us at some point are going to struggle through what I'm, not, I'm going to call situational depression. It's not clinical depression. It's not something you struggle with every day or maybe even once a week or month. But there are things that build up in your life and they just come to a place where life just seems to come crashing down and you feel depressed. Depression means that you are hopeless and helpless. You feel like nothing's ever going to change and you can't do anything to make it better and it's just a feeling that is overwhelming and that leads to a sense of overwhelming sadness. That's the simplest definition that I can find for what depression really is. And it happens to followers of Jesus too. Following Jesus is no inoculation against situational depression. It even happened to this great prophet of God in the Old Testament named Elijah. Now, to bring you up to speed just a little bit, Elijah has had a mission in life, and that mission was to turn the nation of Israel away from idolatry. They had started worshiping this false god named Baal, and to turn their hearts away from this false god named Baal and turn their hearts back to the one true living God. And Elijah has experienced success in his life mission. There's this moment where he challenges the prophets of this false god to a contest. They go to a mountaintop. 
Those false prophets spend all day trying to get Baal to answer their prayers, and he doesn't because he's not real. And then in 20 seconds, Elijah prays a prayer, and the fire of God falls from the sky, consumes the sacrifice. But more importantly than the fire falling was the fact that right after that, the people said, the Lord, the God of Israel, he's the true God. We're turning back to him. They turned back to God. They turned on these false prophets, and they were all killed because idolatry was punishable by death in the Old Testament. And this is a day of great victory. Great victory not because Elijah won, but because the Lord was reestablished as the God of Israel. In the very next chapter of Scripture, after this great life accomplishment, I want to read to you what happens to Elijah. After being on top of the world, look at chapter 19, verse 3. Chapter 19, verse 3 says, And he, that's Elijah, And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord. Take my life, for I am not better than my fathers. The prophet of God, I mean, the guy that God had used for the firefall, for his mighty power, for the pyrotechnic show, the guy that had seen Israel turn back to the one true God, now is sitting under a juniper tree at the edge of the desert, and he says, God, would you please just take my life? I don't want to live anymore. Now, right here, it begs for me to insert something. And I'm very serious about this. If you are having feelings like that, I plead with you to reach out to someone. Reach out to a family member. Reach out to a friend. Tell them how you're feeling. If you can't do that, if you just feel like that's impossible, call our church. One of our pastors will certainly talk with you and pray with you. But if you are feeling like that, you need to reach out to someone. If you couldn't do that, Google National Suicide Prevention Hotline and call them. Please do not allow those feelings to linger, to fester, and to grow in your life. Elijah says, I just want to die. And so we have to ask ourselves a question. What gets the prophet of God, who's been on top of the world in the last chapter, to this low place? Well, there are some reasons that he's running on empty. Why is it that Elijah is running on empty? What leads to that? Well, the first thing is physical exhaustion. Let me tell you a little bit about Elijah's story that I kind of skipped over to get here. But Elijah has been through the ringer physically. Elijah, first of all, spent all day in that contest with the prophets of Baal. When that was over, Elijah goes on top of a mountain and he, uh, he has an intense prayer time for a long time asking God to send the rain. Some of you recall that the reason 
that they're having this contest is because for three and a half years it hasn't rained. God said, I'm not going to make it rain again until you turn your hearts back to me. And so Elijah goes up on the mountaintop and he says, God, the people have turned back to you. Now, would you please make it rain? They're starving. They have no crops. They have no water to drink. Please make it rain. And he does this three times. So there's this season of intense prayer. When he finally sees a cloud coming, he goes back down the mountain and Ahab, the king, who uh, Elijah and him have been in this conflict with one another, is down at the bottom of the mountain. And here's what happens in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 45. In a little while, the sky grew black and the clouds and with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy shower. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. Now think about that for a minute. He's had this all-day contest with the prophets of Baal. He's had this fervent, extended prayer time. Now he comes back down the mountain and he says, Hey, Ahab, you might want to get going because your chariot's going to get stuck in the mud if you don't. Now, they hadn't seen mud in three and a half years in Israel because it hadn't rained. And so Ahab starts to go back toward Jezreel where his, where his palace was. And the Bible says that God's spirit came upon Elijah and he outran he outran Ahab back to Jezreel. Now that's amazing in and of itself. But what's more amazing is this. From Mount Carmel to Jezreel, the ancient Israeli city, is 30 miles. Elijah ran more than a marathon. He is physically exhausted. I mean, he is to a point of absolute physical depletion. There comes a point in all of us where our, we reach our limitations you cannot keep going and going and going and continue and continue and continue and go 100 miles an hour seven days a week without some rest and some refreshment. And that's exactly what happens to Elijah. First of all, he is physically exhausted. Sometimes when you have feelings of depression, there is a physical reason for that. And the physical reason is maybe you're worn out. Maybe you haven't been eating right. Maybe you've been so concerned or working so hard on a project or, or so busy with something that you have not taken care of yourself physically. Depression can have a physical link. Secondly, he was experiencing emotional overload. He was experiencing emotional overload. Now, when I read that passage to you, the very first words of it are that he was afraid. He is filled with fear. What would fill a prophet of God who has seen the fire of God fall in his sacrifice, great merit, what could fill him with fear after he's seen God work that way? Well, when Ahab got back to the palace at Jezreel, the Bible says that he told Jezebel, the queen, what had happened. Specifically, that after this great and incredible move of God, that the people had then turned on the prophets of Baal and they killed all 450 of them. They killed them all. Now, these prophets of Baal ate at Jezebel's table. That's what the Bible says. That they were her prophets. That they were part of the palace prophets. And she sort of took them in as the prophets of Baal, as her personal prophets. And the Bible says that God led the people to slaughter every single one of them. She, she then gets angry about it and says... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill Elijah. Now, here's what's really funny about that. Not funny, ha-ha, like funny, strange. 
What's really strange about that is that Ahab was the king and Elijah had stood toe to toe with him on several occasions. And the king would have had the power to take his life. But there's no evidence that Elijah ever feared Ahab. But when Jezebel said, I'm going to kill you, he was scared to death. There are two reasons for that. One was Ahab was weak and Elijah knew it. He wasn't scared of a weak person. Jezebel was strong. Ahab probably never kept his word. But if Jezebel said something, she meant it. And he knew Jezebel was not only strong, but she was wicked. She was evil, and she would keep her word. She would try to kill him. So he's on the run. He is filled with fear. He is so overwhelmed with fear that he runs away from Jezebel. When your emotions are on overload, they can only go for so long. You have emotional limitations just like you have physical limitations. You can only go so long in fear or in grief. If you're grieving the loss of a loved one, someone who has, someone who has been very dear to you and that person dies and you walk through a season of grief, depression naturally follows that because you cannot go an extended period of emotional overload without kind of crashing. It happens with guilt. If you are experiencing the emotion of guilt and that guilt just seems to be overwhelming, there is a period of time that you can sustain it, but after a while you just, you, you just crash. And that is what happens with Elijah. He has emotional overload. But he's also experiencing a spiritual crisis. And that spiritual crisis is self-pity. Now here is Elijah, a man who God has used greatly. But here's what happens to Elijah, to make a long story short. He takes his eyes off of God, and he starts looking in the mirror and thinking, this has all been on him. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 10, God says, Elijah, why are you feeling this way? What, what is it that's happened in your life? And here's how Elijah answers him. I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your commandment, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. I've done all this stuff for you, God, and now here I am all by myself. Where are you, God? Why have you not come to my rescue? This turns into self-importance. I alone have done all these things. He hadn't done anything alone. God had been with him every step away. He didn't make the fire fall. God made the fire fall. He's not alone, but he becomes self-important. And self-importance will always end up in self-pity when there's failure, when there's a sense that it's not working out like I planned. And that's exactly what happens to Elijah. Now, if you ever walk through a circumstance in which you begin to feel overwhelmed with sadness, things feel hopeless and helpless, depression, what I want you to be able to do is take these tools and come back and just ask yourself some questions. Am I physically exhausted? Have I just reached the, the limitations of my physical ability? Do I need a break? Do I need rest? Do I need to eat right? You need to ask yourself that question. Am I on emotional overload? 
Am, have I just walked so long with this heavy burden that I'm carrying, with this guilt or this grief or this fear or whatever other emotion it is that you just are carrying, this pressure that I'm carrying? Have I carried it so long I just can't carry it anymore? I'm just exhausted by it. Or is there a spiritual issue? And maybe there's all three. But is there a spiritual issue in which you've taken your eyes off of the Lord? I will guarantee you that even one of those things can lead us down the path toward situational depression. And if you get all three of them, you are on the road to a train wreck. So what do you do about that? Well, here's what happens in Elijah's life, and it's what I want us to spend just a few minutes on this morning. God provides when we are running on empty. The good part of this story is that Elijah is just empty. But while he's empty... God is prepared to fill every one of these needs in his life. First of all, God grants us the grace of rest and refreshment. Elijah has run out to the edge of the desert. He's sitting under a juniper tree, finding some shade, some respite from the heat and the sun. And he goes to sleep. And here's what happens in verse 5 when he goes to sleep. The Bible says, He lay down, slept under a juniper tree, and behold... There was an angel touching him, and he said to him, Arise and eat. And then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank, and then he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. God, first of all, meets his physical needs. God provides for his physical exhaustion with sleep. Elijah goes to sleep. The angel wakes him up and says, hey, I got something for you to eat. He looks up. There's a jar of cold water that wasn't there before. There's, a little, there's this little cake that the angel has made, this cake of angel food cake, that's sitting there on this little, this little rock and... And he gets up and he eats it and, and he's filled and, and all of a sudden his blood sugar rises. And, and those of you who kind of suffer from hypoglycemia or kind of when your blood sugar crashes, you get depressed. All of a sudden he felt a lot better, but he's still tired. So he goes back to sleep. A few hours later, the angel touches him again and says, hey, I got some more food for you. Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. I find it interesting that God met Elijah's physical need first. He met his physical need first. Now, in my mind, the spiritual need would be like the priority over the emotional and the physical. But God seems to think that the physical need was really, really important for him to meet in this moment. And I think there's a reason for that. Because God says, for the journey is too great for you. You can't make the journey to health and to, to wholeness and to healing in emotional and in, in the emotional and the spiritual realm, if physically you're still worn out. And so he replenished, God replenishes him with rest and refreshment. When you are walking through a season of being downhearted, being depressed, one of the things you need to look at and say is, Am I rested enough? Am I taking care of myself physically? One third of Americans are sleep deprived, according to recent studies. But Jesus promises us rest. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. 
Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So God meets the physical need. Secondly, God meets his emotional need. God grants us peace for our troubled hearts. Elijah is in this position, largely not because of the physical issue, but because of the emotional issue. He has been overwhelmed by fear, fear for his very life. And the Bible tells us that God tells Elijah, I want you to go to this mountain, the mountain of God. It's also called, it's called Horeb in our passage. In other places, it's called Sinai. It's where Moses received the Ten Commandments, the law. And so, um, and so God says, Elijah, I want you to go there and, and I'm going I'm to meet you there. I'm going to speak to you there. So Elijah is staying in this cave and he hears the voice of God. Now he's heard the voice of God before because he's a prophet. He knows the voice of God. And God says, come out of the cave. When he comes out of the cave, Elijah expects that he's going to meet with God. God has promised to meet with him in this place. And here's what happened. I, I love this passage of scripture. It's 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 11. And he said, go forth. And stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing or breeze. That last word is, obviously the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And it's a very rare word. And so when a word is rare, it's hard to, to know exactly what its context means. Sometimes that word is translated a breeze a gentle blowing. Sometimes it's translated a whisper. See, God wasn't in the earthquake. God wasn't in the mighty wind that ripped apart the mountains in front of Elijah. God wasn't in this huge fire that once again came, just like at the firefall. God wasn't in the spectacular. He wasn't in the pyrotechnics. But God was in the gentle whisper. Some of us are so guilty of wanting God to show up in the spectacular that we can't find him in the silence. And many times that's where he is. He's just in the still, small voice. If you want health and wholeness, you need to get to a place where you can be quiet a place where God can speak peace to your troubled soul. See, I believe God wants to do that. I believe he wants to come to you in the gentle whisper. 
He wants to come to you with that, with that quiet voice that stills your soul and brings to you what Philippians chapter 4, verse 7 calls the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, and it will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's what Elijah needed. He needed the peace of God to handle his fear. You need the peace of God to handle your grief or your guilt or your fear. And in those quiet moments, God gives us that. And third, God met his spiritual need. God gives us a renewed purpose to serve him. Elijah had had this one life purpose, and that was to turn God's people back to him. His one life's purpose was to see that God's people rejected those false gods that they had been chasing after and returned to him. And it happened. And just like so many people who are highly goal-oriented, once you reach your goal, what's next? You want to build a great business and you build a business and you, and you, and you make a profit and, and you want to, what's next? You want to be my, like Michael Phelps and win the gold medal but after all that discipline and training and hard work and the event's over, what's next? I believe Elijah was that kind of person. He was a goal-oriented person. And when he reached his goal, it was just hard to come up with what's next. And the answer for Elijah seemed to be nothing. God, just kill me. Just take my life. But God says, no, Elijah, no. I have more for you to do. In verse 15, he says, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you've arrived, you shall anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Verse 16. And Jehu, son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. Now, there was some veiled good news in that. You know what the veiled good news is? Israel's going to get a new king. Israel already has a king named Ahab. That means that the only way to get a new king is for the old king to die. God is saying to Elijah, I'm going to take care of your nemesis, Ahab and, and, and Jezebel. Elijah, I have taken care of you and I will take care of them. That's what God's saying in, in that. But he also says this. He says, I want you to anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Meholah, and you shall appoint him as a prophet in your place. He says, Elijah, I want you to mentor the next generation. I'm going to raise up a prophet who will take your place, and I want you to mentor this new prophet. Some of you are wondering what the next step is in your life, and the next step in your life may not be another great accomplishment. It might be to come alongside somebody and say, hey, I've walked where you've walked, and I'm going to tell you the Lord was faithful to me, and he'll be faithful to you. Some of you who are empty nesters in this room, you need to come alongside some of these couples who have children who are growing up and you need to say, hey, I, I, let, me, let me tell you about the mistakes. If nothing else, let me tell you about the mistakes we made. Maybe you can avoid those mistakes. You know, you, could, you can learn from mistakes one of two ways. You can learn from mistakes by making them yourself or you could learn from somebody else's and not make them. Some of you who are a little bit younger, you need to look at people who are still younger than you. College students, you need to look at these high school students. Come alongside somebody. Mentor them. Disciple them. God said to Elijah, Elijah, my work doesn't end with you. It's going to go on. Elijah, someday you're going to be gone, but my work will go on. So raise up a successor. But then he addresses Elijah's 
real issue, which was this spiritual self-pity. And here's what God said to him in verse 18. Elijah said, I and I alone, remember that, I'm the only one, nobody cares like I care. God says, yet I have 7,000 in Israel. All the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. In other words, God says, Elijah, you're not alone. You think you're alone. I've got 7,000 prophets who never bowed to Baal. You're one of 7,000. Let me say this to you. One of the things that you need to experience in life is a sense of community. One of the things that drives us toward depression is a sense of aloneness, a sense that we are alone. Not just lonely, but alone. Those are different things. You can be lonely and know, well, you know what, my friends will come back and just be lonely for a little while. But to feel alone, that's isolation. There are two things I would say to you. One is this, to combat our feeling of aloneness, isolation, God gave us the church. That's why God gave us the church. Some of you think the church is a building. It's not. The building is where the church meets. And the church are the, is the people. They're sitting around you. The church is a community. It's a body of believers. And what we find in this body of believers is a sense of community to know we are not alone. In this church... We use life groups as, as our strategy for this, but it's the place where you go and, and you laugh and people will laugh with you and you cry and people will cry with you because it's community. We, we hold things in common. But the second thing I would say to you about isolation and aloneness is this. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are not alone and you will never be alone because he sent his spirit into your heart the moment you ask him to be your Lord and Savior. And he will never abandon you. He will never leave you. Now look, you can quench the Holy Spirit in your life, but the Holy Spirit will never be wrenched out of your life. He is with you always. He will be with you forever. And you are never truly alone because God is with you. In the night before Jesus was betrayed and ultimately crucified. He looked at his disciples and he said in John 16, 32, Behold, an hour is coming and has already come. For you will be scattered, each to his own home, to leave me alone. There it is. Jesus says, I will be left alone. And yet, I am not alone because my Father is with me. If you are a follower of Jesus, you can say that with him. Lonely sometimes, yes. Alone, never. Because he is with me all the time. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, let me tell you the antidote to your aloneness is his presence in your life every single day. And that can only come if you will turn from your sin and give your life to Jesus. We saw it in these baptism testimonies, these powerful testimonies of God working in people's lives. It's real, and it can happen for you. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful and blessed at your hand upon us and your work in this place. 
and through your people. Father, I pray that for those who are feeling a sense of depression and anxiety and loneliness today, that they'll self-evaluate their physical needs, their emotional overload, or their spiritual needs, and turn to you. That they'll turn to you for rest and for peace. That they'll turn to you for purpose and for life. God, we ask you in these moments to bless bless us as we take this remembrance of what your son has done for us on a cross for his full and sufficient sacrifice in Jesus name amen if you'll take that combo cup that you were given when you came in there's a cellophane layer if you'll just pull it back first and that will reveal a small wafer if you just take that wafer and hold it in your hand let me just talk about it for just a moment on the night that Jesus was betrayed he was eating the Passover meal with his disciples. The Passover meal was a celebration of God bringing his people out of slavery in Egypt and setting them free in the promised land. And Jesus took the unleavened bread that was part of that celebration and he gave it new meaning. And he said, this is going to represent my body, which is broken for you. Now that must have alarmed the disciples just a little bit. For Jesus to say, this represents my body, and my body is about to be broken for you. The Bible tells us that on the cross, Jesus bore our sins in his body. He took your sin, he took my sin, he took our sin upon himself. The Bible says in John, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, that he is the atoning sacrifice, the sacrifice that satisfies for our sins, and not only ours, but for the sins of the world. So as we take this, we remember that on the cross, Jesus took my sins in his body. As often as you eat this bread, do this in remembrance of me. Now there's a foil layer to that. If you just pull that back, it's kind of tough. Jesus then took one of the common cups that was on the table for the Passover meal. And he said, this now represents my blood. Now if that statement about the body being broken had been alarming, the statement about this representing my blood must have made their hair on the back of their neck stand up. But what Jesus knew was this, that for centuries at the temple, before that at a place called the tabernacle, sacrifice after sacrifice had been made. Lambs and goats and bulls and doves, all had been slain for their blood to be poured out as the spiritual cleansing for sin. But Jesus would go to a cross and shed his blood and on that cross, he would become the final sacrifice. The, the sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God. The payment for our sin debt. And his blood is poured out. The Bible says, as the remission for our sins. As the cleansing and washing away of our sins. Without it, your sin cannot be washed away. And so Jesus took this cup. And he said, this is the blood 
of the new covenant. As often as you do this, drink it in remembrance of me.